0: Lord, thank you so much for the country in which we live, and I pray your blessing on our leaders. I pray for wisdom for them, and I pray your spirit would work through them to accomplish your will in this world. I thank you for all that you've given to us. We count our blessings and we say thank you. For all the challenges that we have, we also lift those up to you and pray that you would be in every one of those situations, that we'd have the courage and the faith to trust you. Lord, we thank you for all that we have. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as always... Uh, let's text your questions during class to that number. I think it's on the bottom of your sheet as well because it's always kind of nice to know what you're thinking. This series, we've asked this basic question. This was kind of what made me think about wanting to talk about some of these topics. What is different because of Christmas? Meaning, what if Jesus had not come? Now, that's a kind of a mindless experiment in the sense that, again, the sovereignty of God mandated that, of course, he did, he would. But without that event, what's different now? Well, you can think of a lot of things that are different. But with love, joy, and peace, there are marked changes before and after Christ. The legacy of Christ's birth really affects some of the deepest ideas that we hold. So in our last lesson, we talked about love. And we said that Jesus redefined what love was, very different than what the world had thought before. So here's what we were, well, that's not good. Let's try that again. There we go. So we said love, as Jesus defined it, is four basic things. Number one, love is not a feeling. Although feelings are good, infatuation is good, warm cuddly feelings, puppies and a coke, and holding hands around a campfire, that's all good stuff. But Jesus defined love as a decision, something you decide to do that really doesn't base itself on the merit of the recipient. Love that bases itself on the merit of the recipient is a very much more like a business transaction. Jesus loved unconditionally. He made a decision to love. Secondly, love is optimistic. We talked about how love basically sees the good, sees the potential, the way Jesus defined love. Love is also realistic in that love understands that to truly love someone, you have to know them and love them anyway. Remember I told you, I said, we need to expect people to be who they are and we need to love them as they are. But love never will actually end up leaving people where they are. Love is a transformative force because God has so decreed that love would be a transformative force. Then finally, love is constructive. Love builds up. Love is always making the conscious decision and asking the question, what builds you up? What takes you to the next positive step. Love wants good for people whether they deserve it or not. So we said Jesus redefined it from a feeling, from a kind of a mutual business transaction like you love me, I love you, and he redefined it in this way. So in this lesson, I'd like to talk about uh, something a little different. I'd like to talk about the pursuit of happiness. I want to talk about how what Jesus did to happiness. If you look at happiness, apparently happiness can be bought and it can be consumed as a beverage. Pepsi and Coke are really into this. I don't know if you've ever watched their ads, but they basically want to tell you that having a Coke or having a Pepsi is in and of itself just bottled happiness. Right? It makes you happy. A little uh, caffeine jolt, a little sugar. But this idea of happiness, and happiness is a choice, is playing off a common idea that you decide to be happy. Pepsi says happiness is a choice because you get to choose any one of our three products. And then the happiness can't be bought, but books can, and it's almost the same thing. I'm a book lover, Ashley is a book lover, and she sent me that picture, and so Ashley, Happiness is all about books. But the point is, our culture is kind of consumed with the idea of happiness and the pursuit of happiness. And a lot of people would say the point of life is to be happy. That is what people want. He said, what do people basically want out of life? Well, they're all trying to be happy. That sounds really good on the surface, and we're going to go with that a little bit, but we're going to find out that Jesus realized that's a dead end. That's not what Jesus wanted to talk about. He really didn't want to talk about happiness. You don't actually find the word happy or happiness in the Bible very much at all, and where you do, it really will surprise you. But basically, most people in the world are pursuing happiness. Here's an interesting, interesting idea. Happiness means loving yourself and being less concerned with the approval of others. Is that not the best bumper sticker you can imagine? (laughs) I mean that's the person that you just kind of want to watch out for because their happiness says you are the problem. In other words, me worrying about what you think about me and you thinking I'm a jerk is what's keeping me from being happy, right? You can think about a lot of people in the world that approach life this way. That is diametrically opposed but a lot of people think that. They think happiness is being yourself, being your authentic self, Happiness is expressing yourself for who you are. Well, pick up a newspaper, look around the world, and just let me ask you this. How's that working out for everybody? Yeah, it's not a particularly good thing. But if that doesn't work out for you, that will. It turns out happiness can be purchased right here in town, and it isn't even that expensive. Well, the world is pursuing happiness. Because our culture says that's probably the end purpose in life. Some people would say, no, the purpose in life is to leave the world a little better than you found it. There are some people who are idealistic. But by and large, most people want happiness. The problem is most people don't understand how to get it. So let's talk just a little bit about America. This is an interesting passage from the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So it's even encoded into our founding documents that people should be free to pursue happiness in life. That's not a bad thing. Not necessarily a bad thing at all. But our founders really understood the parameters of that. And that's why it doesn't say that happiness is a right. But the pursuit of happiness because as they looked around the world they realized that happiness was not the universal human condition it has not been the norm for humanity through all of history so why is that there they realized this they were very influenced by thomas hobbes and other philosophers of the time who had a particular what's called an anthropology and anthropology is how you view mankind, how you view humanity. For example, our culture has a very distinct anthropology, and that is that you are all basically good people, and if you're not acting very good, it's because somebody else oppressed you in some way. I mean, seriously, that is the prevailing anthropology in the secular humanist world in which we live. It's an anthropology. It's a view of what humanity is like. Now, is it true? I would argue quite apparently not, but there are people who believe that. But our founders had a different anthropology. Listen to what Thomas Hobbes said. He basically, in the context of this chapter, uh, I think it's chapter 13 of the Leviathan, he basically said that if you look at history without restraint, if you just leave people to their own desires to pursue happiness the way they want, here's what you tend to get. Continual fear and danger of violent death and the life of the average person is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Now, at, on the first glance, you think, wow, what a fun guy, you know? He's got a real pessimistic view. But his anthropology, his view of humanity, is based on observation. He said, look, if you just look at history, which he does in this chapter... He says, it seems to be that if you just let humanity take its own course to pursue happiness on its own, then without any kind of restraints, what you see is oppression. You see brutish behavior, violence, oppression of one person over another, man's inhumanity to man. And, and history does tend to bear that out. Well, our founders knew that. And so that's why in this country, the pursuit of happiness is not unrestrained. And that's why I think the American experiment has been so remarkable, is to lay the groundwork for people to pursue prospering, however they define prospering, but to do it in a way that restrained this kind of behavior. And so for a little over 200 years, we have not had tyranny. I mean, I understand that depending on which party you are right now, you think the other party is a bunch of tyrants, but big picture, stop and think about it. We really haven't had unrestrained tyranny, violence, severe oppression, and that's because our founders understood that you can't pursue happiness in an unrestrained way or it leads to this. In fact, here's a great quote from Thomas Jefferson who drafted the Declaration of Independence. He said, and Thomas Jefferson was a deist, not a... Christian, not a Christ follower as much as he was a deist, a believer in an an uninvolved God. Nevertheless, here's what he said, perfect happiness, I believe, was never intended by the deity to be the lot of one of his creatures in this world. In other words, I don't think that the purpose of life, God, the deity, didn't mean for the purpose of life was for all of us to be perfectly happy. In that, he very much picks up the idea of the Bible. He says, but that he has very much put in our power the nearness of our approaches to it. That is what I have steadfastly believed. In other words, as a deist, he said, God created the world, stepped back, and gave us the ability to construct a society in which we can be happy. So Jefferson wouldn't necessarily fit very well with a very biblical point of view But as a founder, here's here's the key thing he did understand, and what the other founders did too, many of them Christians, obviously, but they would agree on this, is that mankind has to be restrained. Their anthropology was very different. It said this, that humanity, this is a very Judeo-Christian idea, it's very much what you see in the Bible, is we all have been bent by sin toward evil, is that the effect of sin on us is that we are bent Toward evil. Anybody that has a two year old goes, Yeah, I mean, of course, we've all seen that. But seriously, the Bible says that we were created good and sin has marred our nature in the sense that we are bent toward evil. And so the nature of our heart is to oppress one another, to take advantage of one another. But that through the grace of God, our hearts can be transformed. That's the anthropology of the Bible. That's kind of the founding idea of humanity of our founders. So what they said was, our natural bent is toward what Thomas Hobbes said, oppression, violence, et cetera. So we must restrain that. And so that's what he's saying is, the deity has at least allowed us to construct a system where we can channel humanity. That's why I think the American experiment has been so powerful. you don't get the idea that Americans, the American governmental system believes that everybody should be happy, but that everybody ought to at least have an opportunity to pursue human flourishing. So that's kind of what our founders thought about that. I think that's very wise in this sense. I want to look into the idea of happiness and tell you why Jesus really, the New Testament doesn't talk about happiness. It talks about something really different. And part of the reason is a couple of key truths about this idea of happiness. I want to make two observations and see if you agree with me. First observation is this. One person's happiness is often built on another person's misery. Think about this. Historically, this has pretty much proved to be true, is that happiness is one of those things that for me to be happy Very often, historically, it has come at the expense of someone else. Now, there are obvious examples. Think Kim Jong-un, right, and his dad and his granddad and that kind of murderous, oppressive regime. If you ask Kim Jong-un, do you have a good life, he'd go, the best. And there are millions of people who are miserable in order to make that happen. If you look at any empire in history, if you look at any successful economy in history, because humans are imperfect, there are always people who are basically paying the price for someone else's happiness. In other words, happiness is often built on somebody else's misery. It's borrowed at someone else's expense. You think about all the empires in history, while they may have done good, One person's happiness very often comes at someone else's expense. Whether that is you and I unconsciously uh, buying goods and products that make our life better and make us happy, but there's somebody in a third world country who's getting subsistence wages to produce it. Now in our country, we've had a social awareness about that and tried to attack it. My point is simply this. Not that we're necessarily bad people for it. I want to make the observation that happiness comes at other people's expense sometimes. Next observation is this. Happiness has an expiration date, and the expiration date on happiness is whatever the next bad circumstance is. Think about that. Happiness is very dependent upon circumstances, and happiness has an expiration date and that is whenever the next bad circumstance happens. Now, I realize those of you in here that are OSU fans, I don't need to tell you that. You've had your hearts broken so many times, you realize this is so true. Happiness could end on the next drive, you know, the next interception, whatever. But you get my point. Happiness is very much a function of our circumstances because happiness is how we feel about what's going on. Happiness is very much in the moment, circumstantially based. That's why I could be happy and someone else could be miserable producing the means for my happiness. That my own happiness, no matter how much money I have, no matter how much power I have, can very much go up and down with circumstances. I know we've said this before, but it bears repeating. Everybody's life can be changed by one phone call. And I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're the President of the United States. I don't care if you're the absolute dictator of North Korea. Anyone's life can be changed by one phone call, and that is, there's been an accident, or I have really bad news about your test results. Anybody's happiness is subject to change at any time because of circumstances. You can't protect yourself from that. You can be happier than the next guy, But you really can't avoid the idea that happiness kind of goes up and down the truth is this think about this i want you to really consider this a little bit and jesus is so wise i mean god understands how this world works and this is one of the big changes with christmas the truth is happiness is unattainable for most of the people in the world now you know wait a minute in america no in the world Think about the 7 billion people in this world. Happiness, as you and I would define it, is literally unattainable for them. And it is unsustainable for anyone in the world, no matter how rich and powerful you are. Happiness is unsustainable for anybody and actually unattainable for most. That has been true through all of history. You could point to today and say it's better now. I would agree. It's better now, but that doesn't change the fundamental truth. Happiness is a very fickle, fickle thing. So what does Jesus do? Jesus comes into the world, New Testament, you begin to read, and you don't read a lot about happiness. Instead, Jesus replaced happiness with joy. Jesus basically replaced something you can't keep with something you can't lose. The New Testament talks about joy. It doesn't say the purpose of life. Jesus came. He didn't come to say, I came to make you all happy. He says, instead, I came to give you something no one can take away from you. Look at this passage. I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. In other words, you will be unhappy at times. And sometimes the world will be happy at your expense. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So it is with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. That is a powerful verse. That verse 22 deserves some meditation. It says, I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Jesus replaced happiness with joy. He basically took away something that can't last and gave you something that just can't be taken away from you. The New Testament talks about happiness continually, I mean about joy continually. As you read through it, you're gonna see the word joy all over the New Testament. You're very seldom gonna see the word happiness because happiness is ephemeral, joy is eternal, joy lasts. That's the purpose for Christian lives. That's what we pursue. We don't pursue happiness. We pursue joy. Let's talk about joy a little bit. What is joy? I want to make just a few observations. Joy is happiness without an expiration date. Basically, joy is happiness without the expiration date. Joy is not circumstantially based. You can be unhappy and be joyful. Think about this for a minute. You can be unhappy and be joyful happiness without an expiration date secondly it is happiness without the bipolar symptoms I mean think about happiness is up and down based on circumstances joy is happiness without the ups and downs it basically takes the ups and downs because in both of these cases it's not circumstantially based Jesus came and said I'm gonna take you out of this little roller coaster cycle in which you live, this scratching and clawing and striving and up and down of my circumstances determine how I view life and people and everyone around me. He says, I'm gonna put something so great on the horizon that you can now smooth that out. And so you can, you can go past your circumstances. But let's talk about how do you do that. Joy is having enough. This is a profound idea that I really want you to think about. I want you to think about the idea, first of all, do you know what enough is? Do you know what enough is? That's not a trivial question, especially not to an American. I mean, think about it. I used to think that this was enough. Now I realize you can't live without Wi-Fi. It's a basic unalienable right and I should have it everywhere I go, right? And if I didn't have a smartphone, life's not worth living. How will I know what some cute thing somebody's doing with their cat? You know, I I wouldn't see those cute cat videos. In all seriousness, basically the idea of, the question of, do you know what's enough for you? That's enough to just spend a year thinking about that. In fact, spend 2018 thinking about that. Seriously, it'll prove the quality of our lives. Do I know what is enough? That's a profound question. Joy is having enough. Listen to this. This is a beautiful passage from Paul. I am not saying this because I'm in need. Listen to this. For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to be unhappy. And trust me, he had to have been unhappy at times. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret. Of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or in want. I can actually do everything through him who gives me strength. I can bear everything, I can withstand everything, I can endure everything, I can rejoice in everything. The book of Philippians is written while Paul is in jail. Not a nice jail. And Paul, the word joy and rejoice are all over that letter. The point he's trying to make is what Jesus was saying is, that can't be taken away because of your circumstances. Joy is knowing when you have enough. And closely related to that, joy is having what matters most. There's some more words from Paul. He said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You see what Jesus has done, is he said if you're looking for contentment, happiness, joy in this life, First of all, you have one basic problem. You are going to die. And if any of you didn't know that, I'm sorry, spoiler alert. Everybody dies. He said that kind of casts, you know, kind of a shadow over life, right? He said, and you know what? The truth of this is, is you can't maintain your happiness, and you really can't even control it. You think you can sometimes, but you can't control it. And so what Jesus says is, look, I'm going to show you what matters most, I'm going to show you something of eternal significance. And when you fix your eyes on that, it's going to even out everything in your life. And Paul said, I consider these difficulties, when they are put in the perspective of eternity, mean almost nothing. He says this, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I would argue that that might be the definition of a Christian. And if so, that should sober you as it does me." What if that's the definition of a Christian? I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, or for whose sake I am willing to lose all things. I consider those things rubbish that I may gain Christ. That kind of an attitude, and this is where the Bible's coming from, the Bible says this is our attitude as followers of Christ. Given that. That's how you can achieve a joy that no one can steal. That's how you can get past this little happiness roller coaster that we we put ourselves on. I mean, we strive, we struggle. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. Solomon, wisest guy in the world, writes this book. Solomon has all the money you could want, all the power that you could want, more wives than anybody could possibly want you know, more concubines than anybody could possibly imagine. He has the ability to build buildings. He has the ability to indulge every whim that he wants. Writes the book of Ecclesiastes, and what does he say? Ultimately, this is all meaningless. What God did was he said this. He said, Solomon, I'm going to give you everything you could possibly have, and I want you to run it out to the end, and you tell me, do you find happiness at the end of it? Because I'm going to have thousands of years of people who are going to go chase happiness. And they're going to get to the end of their life, and they're going to go, wait a minute. I've been going down a dead-end street. He said, I'm going to let you go and do it for them. So he gives them everything he could possibly have. He writes the book of Ecclesiastes, and read it this way. This is what life looks like before Christ replaces happiness with joy. Because the best he can do is say, I had everything you could possibly have. And at the end of the day, I'll tell you this, it's meaningless, it's chasing after the wind. It's never satisfactory. You can't hold on to happiness. Jesus replaces happiness with joy. He says this, what will it profit a man? Think, you remember this passage from uh, Matthew? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? That's what Paul is saying. Happiness is having what matters most. If we are pursuing happiness through things of this earth, then what does that say about us? It says that's what matters most to us. Jesus also said this. He said, no one can serve two masters. You can't pursue God and money, meaning the things of this world that you think are going to make you happy. He said, you can't have both of these things. Whatever it is you're pursuing, that's what's really important to you. That's what your master is. Jesus comes and replaces it and said, if you follow me, I want you to pursue joy, not happiness, not circumstantially based happiness. Make sense? These are just some things I would like you to Think about it. I want you to meditate on this. I don't know if you've thought about it in this way, but our world is still preaching the happiness gospel. I mean, the news that says, look, the end goal of humanity is to go be as happy as you can. You live in America. There are people overseas that are kind of paying for that. Enjoy. Be as happy as you can. But I want you to look around America. I mean, think about the statistics. We've talked about this before. We are easily the most prosperous nation, not just the most prosperous nation, in the world, we are the most prosperous nation in history. In all of recorded human history, we are the most prosperous nation. The poorest person in America would have been considered well off 100 years ago. I don't say that to diminish poor people in America. Don't misunderstand me. I'm simply saying we've reached that pinnacle. Do you see that most Americans are happy Most Americans say they are not happy. The prescription drugs for anxiety medicine would say that's true. In other words, we live in the most prosperous nation of all of history, and we are no happier than anyone else in history. In fact, you hear these anecdotal stories. People that tend to go on mission trips to third world countries come back, and they always, always say this. They don't say, oh, gee, everybody there is all happy. They don't say that, they just say this. They say they have so much less than we have, and yet, on average, they seem happier than we are. What is wrong with that? I mean, it's really cognitively disturbing because that's not what the world tells us. The more you have, the happier you'll be. And yet we go see in the world that that's actually not true. And that's why Jesus replaces happiness with joy. So I wanna talk about what are we actually gonna do with that, but before we do, let's see if we have any questions. Is the joy that Jesus promises in verse 22 in the future tense? That's a great question. Is the joy that Jesus talks about in the future tense? No, it's not. It's actually joyful here and now. Now, he's saying that you're going to grieve now, but you're going to have a joy that can't be taken away from you, kind of like the woman in childbirth. But as you read the New Testament, it doesn't say, suffer now, be miserable, someday you'll be happy. That's not the case. Think about what Paul said. He said, I have learned the secret of being content in any circumstance. And if you know anything about Paul's life, it was not good. It was not the poster boy for the prosperity gospel. Seriously. I mean, he really suffered for the gospel, and yet he writes that. He says, I've learned the secret to be content. What is it? That eternal perspective allows us to see and put our events in our lives into a completely different paradigm. I'm not talking about this happiness as a mindset. I'm not talking about the self-help idea that says, look, you can't change events, change the way you think about events. That's actually not bad advice. It's just not good enough. I mean, that's basically, if you wanna do that, you might as well be a Buddhist, seriously. I mean, that's where it led me. When I was 18 years old, I thought, If that's the way you're going to be, you might as well be a Buddhist. Let's just do total non-attachment, right? Everything's an illusion. I mean, reality is an illusion. I just need to realize good, bad, evil, pain, pleasure, those things are an illusion. That's the ultimate of taking that advice. And it doesn't work. The idea that you can't control events, but you can control how you think about them, that's not a biblical idea. I mean, that's not bad advice if you're a secular person. Jesus says... You definitely can't control events, and you can't make yourself happy with them because you know what? Some events are bad, and they cause you a lot of pain, and they're tragic. The only way to supersede this is to put it in an eternal perspective and realize God makes all things right in the end, that you can be unhappy now and yet put it in a perspective that I have joy. Paul's not happy that he's in prison. He's not happy that he got beaten or stoned or almost killed, but he is joyful knowing, I consider all of these sufferings nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed. Jesus is talking about joy here and now in spite of our circumstances. Good question. What was the Greek's idea of joy? And is joy mentioned in the Old Testament? And if so, how did they perceive that idea? Yeah, question basically, how did other cultures perceive joy? How do um, the Greeks perceive joy, Old Testament idea of joy? You don't actually see that word being all that prevalent. Joy is, I mean, you do see the word, the Greek word for joy in other literature. But they really focus more, What depending on what Greek philosophy it was. I mean, some of the Greeks and Romans were Stoics, and they basically said the way to be happy in life, the way to deal with life, was just be, you know, just take the good, take the bad, and never let anything rev you up very much, right, think an accountant, okay, you know, just really steady, okay, that was a cheap shot for all of you that are accountants, I apologize. But seriously, they were like, just keep it, Epicureans said, hey, life's got some bad times in it, just maximize the good times. In other words, enjoy the good moments and savor those good moments and be happy in the moment and moderate yourself a little bit. And so they tended to focus on happiness dealing with their circumstances. Old Testament, if you think about it, the Jews, it's sort of like, this is the analogy I like to use. You can talk to a 21-year-old about the idea of joy meaning you can talk about the idea of these circumstances need to be seen against the backdrop of eternity, and there's the cognitive and the emotional capability to go, I see what you're saying. Your three-year-old is not going to understand that very well. Your three-year-old is going to understand the idea of stimulus response, right? I'm happy now i'm sad now you're a good parent now you're a terrible mommy now in other words you understand that's going to happen and so in the old testament god's dealing with kind of the equivalent of spiritual toddlers and so he gives them laws and he said if you follow these laws you will tend to do well and if you don't follow these laws you won't tend to do well if you're faithful to me then you will do better doesn't mean your life will be perfect you'll always be happy but he's saying i'm trying to train you up into the principles that will get you to the point where you can have eternal joy. And so the Bible says, in Galatians, Paul writes this. He said the law, Old Testament era, think about it that way, was a school teacher to bring us to Christ. In other words, God sort of grew humanity up from our toddler years, and his plan of redemption was to raise us in such a way that at just the right time, Christ comes and says, now let me explain to you what you could not have understood before. And so all of humanity then grows up to the point where we understand the idea of joy. We understand the idea of being able to take our circumstances, set them against the backdrop of eternity, against the promises of God. So good question. Different cultures have had different ideas about that. But this idea about joy requires an eternal perspective. And consequently, Christianity is very unique in this idea. Let me give you a couple of really practical things. Joy reacts to circumstances in view of what you know to be true. This is very profound, truth. this is very actionable. I want you to think about it when things happen to you, good, bad, indifferent, if you react to those circumstances in view of how you feel about it at the moment, you're on the happiness roller coaster. If instead you say, I'm gonna react to this based on what I know to be true. Here's a great verse, I mean, there are several verses, but here's one that's pretty well known. That's what this is saying. We know that in all things, in all circumstances, in all events, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. In other words, if you're a Christ follower, if you are following Jesus Christ, God is ultimately working for good in your life. Notice it doesn't say God's going to ensure that you are happy. God's going to ensure that everything goes your way. In fact, Jesus is honest to say it's not. But let me tell you what I want you to do. I'm going to give you joy that can't be taken away from you. God, that certainty of the knowledge that God is working in all things ultimately for good, allows you to interpret your circumstances based on what you know to be true, rather than what you feel to be comfortable. Does that make sense? That's the difference between following Christ and not. Not following Christ, when something bad happens to me, I feel bad about it, and that rules me. Following Christ, I am able to say, I have believed, remember, what do we need to to do to be saved? We trust in Christ. I trust that that is true, that even in this situation, God works for the good of those who love him. Joy reacts to circumstances in view of what we know to be true, not what we feel to be comfortable. And then secondly, joy believes in the truth of God's promises in every circumstance. I don't know about you, but this is when I was first a Christian, and still now kind of slip into this. I think of of it this way. I think that God's promises are true and evident when things are going my way, and when they're not, I must have done something wrong. Do you ever feel that way? that if you're doing God's will, if you're doing the right thing, then God's just gonna make everything work out. You sometimes even hear that in our prayers. It's like, God, you know, kind of show me the way I'm supposed to go because that'll mean everything goes smoothly. Somebody should have told the Apostle Paul that. I mean, think about this. He goes into one town, preaches the gospel, bunch of people believe, bunch of people get mad, beat him up, kick him out of town. Goes to the next town, goes in, preaches the good news, bunch of people believe, a bunch of other people decide, we're going to beat you with rods, beat him with rods, and kick him out of town, and he goes to the next one. Now, I don't know about you, but it'd take about two of those before I went, I must not be doing God's will. This is not going all that well from my perspective, you know? And so I've already reached my out-of-pocket maximum on my health care plan, and it's only June. I mean, that's Paul's life, right? And so but he doesn't. He said he doesn't take those circumstances as being the arbiter of doing the right thing. He takes the fact, am I being faithful or not? Am I doing what God called me to do? In that case, I believe the truth of his promises in every circumstance, not just the good ones. There's a couple of beautiful passages from Romans 8. What should we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? For I am convinced that neither death or life, angels or demons, present or future, nor any powers, height or depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's he saying there? He's saying my eye is set on the truth of what God has said, and my circumstances cannot shake that cannot shake it. Joy believes in the truth of God's promises in every circumstance, not just the good ones, but also the bad ones, that, you know what, God's promises are still true. And that's the essence, it seems to me, in the day-to-day life, is to know that joy reacts to circumstances based on what we know, what we have believed to be true. And joy believes that truth in every circumstance, and that's how we rise above, if you will, that happiness roller coaster. That my mood, my happiness is going to depend on the circumstances of my life, which I cannot control and most people in the world cannot attain. So Jesus replaces happiness with the concept of joy and he enlarges our horizon. The problem for us is we get caught, this is very natural, we get caught living day to day with blinders on. You know, we have a very myopic vision of the future. If we would step back and say, wait a minute, what do I believe? I believe that God loves me. I believe that God works in all circumstances for good. I have seen in the Bible how God took even the most horrendous things and made them good. I believe God's promises are true whether I get a good diagnosis or a bad diagnosis, whether I get the promotion or I don't get the promotion, whether these are hard times or easy times, this is an opportunity to exercise faith, meaning acting like I believe what I say I believe. That's the essence of joy. That idea was not around before Jesus Christ. Jesus replaced the idea of happiness that's so ephemeral with the idea of joy. It couldn't have happened without Jesus Christ. Finally, I want to link this idea of joy and peace together. This is a beautiful little passage. This is worth memorizing. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The idea of love and joy and peace, you know they're connected because they're all fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and then goes on and lists six more. But love, joy, and peace are all linked together. They are all things God is trying to accomplish in us if we will actually live out what we believe. And so this week, I really want you to think about some of the things we talked about, about happiness. Are you, in, in practice, am I pursuing happiness? Or in practice, am I making my circumstances subject to what I know to be true? which is the key to joy. What am I actually doing on a Monday through Friday kind of basis? And I would argue that even if you go to the mall, even if you can't find a parking space, you can be joyful. You cannot be happy, but you can be joyful, right? There'll be no lines in heaven. Next time I wanna talk about this idea of peace. I wanna talk about the idea of peace because I believe that what every adult really wants for christmas is a little peace and quiet and so jesus kind of redefined this idea too because you don't see a lot of peace in the world but jesus changed that and he redefined that idea of peace and how you find it next week the secret of finding peace and it's not on top of some mountain in nepal it'll be right here in the venue at crossings i'll see you guys next week